from Matthew, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Page 972, if you'd like to follow that in the Pew Bible. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go! It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we sit, I'll say a traditional prayer about the Bible. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Help us so to hear them, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through perseverance and the strengthening of your holy word, we may embrace and forever hold fast the hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I use that traditional prayer because I like it. No, I use that traditional prayer because... It reminds us of the purpose of looking at God's word together, whether it's here in church, whether it's in one of our growth groups, whether it's just more informally, and when we look at the Bible on our own. The purpose, as that prayer said, or one of the purposes, is to grasp the meaning of eternal life, not just life in the future after death, the life of the age to come, which Jesus 
brought in himself, life in all its fullness, the life of God's kingdom or the life of the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew would call it, that starts here and now and continues forever. But not just to understand those wonderful truths, but to accept them for ourselves and to know them in our own experience. Because Bible truth is active and personal. It isn't just for detached study. It's meant to work its way into the depth of our being, cutting to the very soul of us, as uh, uh, the writer of the Hebrews said, and dividing, as it were, even the sort of joints and marrow of the bones from each other, getting that much inside us, and then to change us from the inside. That's why that prayer encourages us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. That's what I hope we'll do with Matthew's gospel. We, a couple of years ago, we did the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we began today with uh, the words, when he, when Jesus came down from the mountainside after that uh, sort of extended period of teaching, some to his small group of disciples, some to the wider crowds. We're going to look, carrying from Matthew chapter 8, we're going to work through sometimes just 9 or 10 verses, sometimes a bit more, working our way through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, halfway through chapter 15 by the end of August. Um, So we see what that gospel of Matthew um, says to us. The Bible's spiritual food, and we should treat it like food, something that's very close to my heart. We shouldn't be like the gardener. Won't surprise you, those of you who've seen my garden, that I say that. We shouldn't be like the sort of gardener who takes tremendous care over their prized vegetables only to display them on a stand at the Taunton Flower and Veg Produce Show. We shouldn't be like the cookery expert, you know, those ones on Bake Off, the judges, or, well, it doesn't matter which day of the week it is, does it? If you go through about six channels, you'll hit a cookery programme, whatever day of the week it is. But we shouldn't be like those sort of cookery experts, you know, the way they study the recipes, they enter the competitions, and when, then what do the judges do? They just take one little teaspoonful and they leave the rest of it just lying there. We shouldn't be like that with the Bible. No, we should be more like the labourer, you know, the one who eats a hearty breakfast or three in order to have the energy to do their work. Or like the athlete who follows a carefully planned diet to turn out their very best performance. There should be a purpose to our Bible reading and our Bible study on our own in church and when we look at it in our groups. So as we look at these chapters from Matthew's Gospel, by all means, let's get to know more of the background of each incident. Then we'll be able to appreciate the wonderfully personal way in which Jesus handled each individual that he met. But let's remember that Matthew wasn't just writing a fascinating biography. He was writing a gospel, and gospel means good news. Good news for the Christians in his own time. Thought that uh, Matthew, that's the Matthew, the um, tax collector, who was called by Jesus to follow him, called from being an unpopular, well, almost regarded as a traitor. We'll come to that a few chapters later in detail, but called to follow Jesus. And uh, some people think, well, it may be that what Matthew did was collect the teachings of Jesus 
And it was his collection of teachings and Jesus put together with that outline in Mark's gospel, which makes Matthew's gospel that we know, whether written and edited, as it were, by Matthew himself or with its were all the extra bits from above Mark from Matthew. But sometimes he's uh, shortened it and cut out some of the rather fascinating details we find elsewhere. So we focus more clearly on what perhaps he saw the key point for the Christians of his time. Thought he was probably writing, but they're not certain, probably writing to Christians perhaps as late as uh, 80 AD, perhaps 50 years after he'd gone round with Jesus, perhaps, perhaps not. Perhaps up in, well, near what we'd call the border between um, Turkey and Syria, there's still a place called Antioch. It's a bit confusing because there are several places called Antioch, but this one and was where the Christians were first called Christians, where um, Paul set out from some of his journeys, sent out from that church from near that um, border that's, you know, really rather in the news at the moment for, for sadder reasons. And uh, he was probably writing to, to a church where the majority of people in the, in the congregation, remember it was more like a giant home group, not in a sort of building like this. And he, he was writing to a church, probably the majority were from a Jewish background, like Matthew himself was, like all the um, 12 apostles were, like Paul was, like Jesus himself was from a Jewish background. But they were now in a place that was a bit sort of half and half, more in Gentile territory. And uh, they felt a bit threatened. They felt threatened from those, uh, the people who weren't Christians in society outside them with those uh, inc- lots of sort of pagan worship. You can still see the ruins of the buildings. And, uh, but they also felt threatened by the, those Jews who hadn't accepted Jesus as their Messiah and were putting pressure on them. They felt under quite a lot of pressure. And when we're under pressure, the tendency sometimes is to, well, let's just keep our heads down. Let's just keep in our stuff comfortable little group and, and uh, wait for things to get better. But as Matthew reminds at the end of his gospel, Jesus said, go out into all the world and preach the good news. Baptize people, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. At the beginning of his gospel, as we've, we're thinking just uh, at the beginning of the year, the first thing he mentions after Jesus is born is how wise men from the east following the stars totally Gentiles, no Jewish background at all, came and worshipped Jesus, their Messiah. So quite often in his gospel, Matthew, as it were, cuts out some of the details, but then really gets us to focus on the way that Jesus is for everyone. We should take his message out um, to everyone. So let's listen to what God may be saying to us through these chapters of Matthew, perhaps about the way Jesus is for everyone. Jesus can meet all our different needs. Jesus is Lord and must be announced and recognized as Lord by everyone. Well, in our passage today, and do have it open at page 972 in, on, um, in the Pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 8, the first of Jesus' miracles is of the man with leprosy. It's the first miracle that Matthew describes in any more, in any sort of detail at all in his gospel. And perhaps that's because it was such a dreaded disease. Leprosy, sometimes the word means other skin diseases. You may have a little note at that at the bottom of the page. The thing was, they couldn't really tell always which was which at those times. They tended to, um, for safety reasons, health reasons, um, to treat them often in the same way. It was very much a, a, a disease that was feared because of the way it would spread inexorably through the whole body and gradually you'd even lose the sensation or even lose parts of 
of your body over a period of years. It was like a sort of living death sentence. Not only that, because it was so contagious, or at least some of these skin diseases were so contagious, um, there were rules about how you couldn't join in everyday living. And back in the Old Testament, in what's called sometimes the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, including the book of Leviticus, the bits I've never heard, I think, read as a a reading in church. There's There's a whole chapter about these skin diseases, about the sort of rules about a Um, not having contact with them, that if you touch something, other people had to wash it so many times before they could use it. And there was an added sense that somehow you were unclean. Well, you were infectious or contagious, perhaps it is. Um, But also that there's, and, and that sort of almost made the people feel that they were, there was something sort of wrong with them. Not just that they got a disease, but perhaps there was something wrong. Perhaps Later on, it's not stated in the Old Testament list, but later on, the, the idea sort of developed over the years that, well, perhaps it was something you'd done. That's why you were getting your just desserts and this disease. Or perhaps it's something your parents had done. Um, there's, Jesus himself didn't follow this. There's a, an account when Jesus heals a blind man, John chapter 9, and they, they bring him to him and they say, they say to Jesus, well, who sinned, this man, or was it his parents that he was born blind? said, no, that's the wrong way of looking at it, paraphrase, the wrong way of looking at it. It's not, that's not why he's blind. It's not a, a, a punishment either from him or for what his, his parents have done. And, and other um, disasters that happened, Jesus taught the same message. No, it's not a matter of a sort of neat blame for, for one thing. But that was a very prevalent idea in that society. And I think actually it's still quite common today. You, I mean, you hear people say, don't you, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. There's still something of that idea, it's not really spelt out, but that somehow any sort of suffering or one of the reasons perhaps is something we've done wrong. Jesus rejected that idea. But on the other hand, he did deal with people who had that idea and tried to, um, as it were, that was part of how he dealt with them. He dealt with them with their models and he deals with us with our models too. I'm just going to disappear for a moment and pick my notes up. (laughs) There. Um, so this leprosy had this, um, this terrible effect that it cut you off from, from society and uh, you had to keep a certain distance away and, and then rules were developed. I mean, this, this thing you sometimes see almost as a, in comedy films about lepers going around ringing bells and saying unclean, unclean. Well, that is literally what they had to do in some places. And of course, it meant you couldn't really um, earn a living. So all you could do was beg. But you, even begging, you couldn't get near to people. You'd perhaps leave out your begging bowl and then retreat for a distance from it so that then people could put the money or perhaps some food in it or near it. And then when they'd gone, you'd then go to the bowl and collect what you needed. Terrible. You just cut you off so much. In fact, it would end up with the only people really you did have much contact with were people, fellow sufferers from that disease. Uh, maybe because of this idea that was going around at the time that uh, um, people were sort of to, to blame for what happened to them and that some people had that idea. Or it may be because of the way he knew that he wasn't supposed to have contact with people. That may be behind what the, um, the man with leprosy says. Verse 2, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. He's going to make a request. It's the, 
accepted thing to do. Perhaps it shows more than that. He's heard something of what Jesus can do. Jesus is on just on the outskirts of Capernaum, which we know became his sort of base um, on the northern shore of Lake Galilee during um, his ministry. And this is just outside um, the town. It says that large crowds followed him in chapter one, but I suspect that, I mean, they'd have parted like waves if this a man with leprosy had, had come through. Perhaps it's just a shortened account, and, and by this stage, the crowd's been following, but now there's just a more um, quiet moment outside the town. I'm not sure, and it's not clear in the other two Gospels that record this incident. <clears throat> anyway, the man says, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. A bit intriguing, isn't it? He, he's sure that Jesus can make him clean, can heal him, but are you willing, Lord? Perhaps are you willing to come near enough to me to make me clean? Are you willing to risk, in a sense, contaminating yourself to make me clean? Or perhaps, are you willing to make me clean, or are you going to, like so many other people around, say, well, no, you know, you've got what you deserve. That's your fate. That's it. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus' response must have overwhelmed him because he He disregards any implications for his own health, you know, whether he's going to catch this disease. And he he doesn't worry about whether under the rules in Leviticus, he'll be sort of defiled by contact and have to go through all these washing ceremonies. We read in verse three, then Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, reached out his hand and touched the man. Imagine how that man felt. It may have been the first time that anyone had touched him for years. Can you imagine that? I, mean, I know there are some people living in very lonely circumstances today who will say when someone goes, even shakes hands, let alone gives them a hug, they may say, well, that's, you're the first person who's actually touched me for weeks. That's something perhaps that's a challenge to us, but that's another side to it. For this man, it would be the first time, probably perhaps for years, that anyone has touched him. And Jesus understood what that meant, and that's why he reached out to touch him. We know he didn't need to touch him to heal him. We see that from what happens just a few verses later. But he did touch him to show that he accepted him, that he didn't have this idea that He was to blame for what had happened to him in this suffering. But it wasn't all, of course, that Jesus did. We read on, I am willing, Jesus said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then comes that rather complicated bit, doesn't there, about Jesus saying to him, see that you don't tell anyone. That quite often quite happens, maybe um, because Jesus didn't want only to have people following him for his healings. And in one of the other Gospels, it said that because of all this happening, he just couldn't sort of go out and preach anywhere because they were all crowding around him. We we don't really know. It may be that Jesus was actually saying, well, don't go off and tell everyone now. No, what you must do now is go to the, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. That was another chapter in this book, Leviticus in the Old Testament. It said that If you were healed, or if you thought you were healed, or perhaps, you know, if you thought it wasn't leprosy after all, it was something different. Anyway, if you thought you were healed, you had to go to the 
the priest, presumably keeping a little slight distance from the priest. They're quite, quite brave people. Um, but uh, um, you go to the priest, you had to have offerings, and then they, you had to shave your head and the body hair, and then, so they checked, so they could see, of course, you know, I mean, looking at some of you, there might be anything underneath there, you know, those are such, who knows? I mean, you look at Mark, you can tell he's not in, and contagious with anything. It's easy in his case. But anyway, they had to shave their hair, and then they had to then wait a week. You know, they, they weren't daft, I think it's quite important, they weren't daft in those days, they knew about, they knew leprosy was this dangerous disease. They knew it had its effect. They could tell when some was ill and when they weren't. Later on, we'll find they knew whether it was illness or whether it was the effect of evil spirits. They knew when someone had, you know, had died and then Jesus raised from the dead. I think sometimes we're a bit condescending about people in this time. So, and these regulations showed you had to wait for a week and then go through washings again. Then you were inspected again you know, to make sure you really were still clean. And after a couple of sacrifices of birds, I think it was... Um, you know, then you were, then you were a certificate. Yes, the priest said, a bit like a medical certificate to say you were clean. And that meant, of course, you then could go back. But if you went into this man, if he'd gone into Capernaum, just saying, oh, well, you know, Jesus made me better. If he approached the town, he could well have had stones thrown at him to drive him off because people were so afraid, understandably, of catching this disease of leprosy. But if he got the, if it had been recognised, if it's sense, and then the, the local priest had sort of, you know, put it in the news sheet or, um, you know, put it on Facebook for the church's synagogue page in Capernaum or whatever they did in those days, you know, wrote it, stick it on a camel, taking it round so that people knew, you know, someone like one of those sort of McDonald's people standing out with a sandwich board saying, you know, you know, Rabbi Mark says he has been cleaned of his leprosy. You can approach him now, you know, that sort of thing. However they did it, he could then go back into society. So perhaps it, was the, it wasn't the two things. Jesus didn't sort of override the Old Testament. No, he said, fulfill what Mosaic law said. But it had a very practical meaning. It meant that then the, the person who had leprosy was not only healed from his physical disease, he was not only got the start of his emotional healing with Jesus touching him when no one had touched him for months, but he was also, as it were, socially healed and accepted back into the community and able to start a complete new life. It would almost be as if he was starting a new life from having been as good as dead socially. And it's true today that Jesus doesn't you know, just deal with us with particular symptoms, if I can put it like that. Jesus is concerned with the whole of our lives. I mean, that was the point of that Where's it gone? Oh, there's the thing over there. Thank you, Mark. Yes. The roadworks business, that Jesus isn't in the, posi- in the, in the position of just sort of as we're patching us up from, you know, um, with our problems. He's not in the business, as it were, of just uh, getting us to cover over, to show us how to put on a brave face. Like some sort of or therapies or some sort of life coaches would say today, they almost encourage, say, well, the thing is, if you get up, look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am a good person 10 times in the morning. I know I'm slightly making fun of it, but those sort of thing, you know, put on a brave, cover it up, then in a sense you'll feel better, and because you feel better, you will be better. No, Jesus isn't in the business. God isn't in the business of just covering up 
what's wrong with us. God's in the business, as we said, of, as it were, digging up the road completely and relaying it, changing us from the inside, his spirit working um, in our lives. And, and there was an added thing to this uh, leprosy too. It was, as well as being this terrible disease and the way it cuts you off from society, it was used as a picture of spiritual disease, uncleanness, sin, in the way that it, sin, our attitude of re- rebellion against God and what it does to our lives, setting us up as the boss in our own lives, well, it spreads through our lives. It can se- break relationships, separates from other people, and uh, it can also mean that as, just as the person with leprosy wouldn't have been allowed to join in the worship, well, our sin, our rebellion, our setting ourselves up as our own boss can separate us from God. And so the picture of leprosy was seen as a picture of this, and so the healing from leprosy would be seen as a picture of our whole life being made whole, as it was um, for that man there. I think it's quite important, because sometimes when we're looking at these um, accounts of Jesus healing the Bible, we think, well, if I'm honest, I find it sometimes difficult, because they're very much focused on physical healings. And I'm thinking, well, yes, we do pray for those today. Sometimes we see um, miracles happen. Quite honestly, not very often. Many times we see people heal through God's gift of medicine. That's how people heal. But many times people aren't physically healed. Yet at the same time, there can be that sort of spiritual healing of which many of these conditions are a picture It's difficult to understand when our prayers for physical healing aren't answered in the ways that we would hope. I believe we can always find spiritual strength and healing from God through those prayers. Then when we experience God's touch on our lives, then we can also pray that we too will be able to use to reach out with God's love to those around us, perhaps particularly to people who feel rejected and excluded. Faith of that man with leprosy was tentative, but the centurion's faith that we go on to in the next verses, 5 to 13, that was extraordinary. Just as unusual in those days would have been this, not just his faith, but this centurion's concern for his domestic slave. I mean, given that he was, a, he was an officer in the Roman occupation forces, it might be like just his sort of Batman, you might call it. His, so, but he's been a slave, um, that's the word servant, um, servant slave, it's the same word, and he'd have been bought by, he may well have been bought by this um, you know, centurion in the slave market to do these jobs. Well, you know, tough officer in the army, you know, you'd expect they'd think, well, if he's no good, get another slave. That would be the obvious solution. But no, he was concerned for him, and that would have been um, unusual given the, the way that the slaves, even the domestic slaves, might have been used, looked at in those days. It's also very unusual that uh, this centurion is willing to go to ask for help from Jesus, who is a Jew. He's the occupation forces, um, the Romans. I mean, what would the other people in the, in the camp, I was just imagining this, in the, sort of the, the officers' quarters, um, have felt when he said, if he did say in advance, um, well, I'm really worried about his servant. I'm going to, I'm going to go into to town and see the, the, the Jewish rabbi, the Jewish healer. I, I mean, they just laughed at him, surely. So he's quite brave and courageous. Well, he obviously was a courageous man, but morally courageous as well as physically courageous. Extraordinary. It's quite, and uh, 
for him to approach Jesus in, in that way. It says, um, the, yes, the centurion came to him asking for help. And then Jesus replied, well, he says, I will go and heal him. If you've got the more modern edition, uh, the latest edition, as one, two people seem to have, I see on little tablets in front of them, it may well um, have it as a question, shall I come and heal him? I'm just looking in case one down here. I think it's got, shall I come and heal him? In the, it has a nodding from my technical expert below me. And, uh, or it could translate even, do you expect me to come and heal him? Do you expect me, because the, there's an I word there in the original, to come and heal him? Um, because it, it was a very unusual thing. But, uh, usually Jews wouldn't go into a Gentile home like this centurion. Centurions wouldn't usually have much to do with the Jews. But in any case, which, uh, whichever's the, the right interpretation there, the centurion's reply shows both his humility and his faith, that Jesus' word alone is sufficient to heal his servant. I don't know, this almost gets a tingle when I read that verse 8 as an example of wonderful faith. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's wonderful the way he takes from his own, his life, his sort of frontline type life, and really expresses his faith in, in those words that Jesus can just say a word and heal his servant. And that faith was justified. When he eventually got home, he found that the servant had been healed at the very moment Jesus spoke the word of healing. You can imagine it, can't you? He goes, he goes back. We don't know I mean, how far away it was from his barracks to where he, he met Jesus. But you can imagine he, he goes back thinking, well, I'm, it's been going to be wonderful. I'm going to be able to tell my servant that you know, Jesus has said he'll be healed. Um, and so you know, he comes along. And as he gets to the door, there's the servant carrying his spare suit of armor ready polished and with a, you know, a bowl of pork casserole. He's a Gentile, he can have pork casserole. Um, they're greeting him that he's been cooking. And he says, this is amazing. I'm, I, 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 I was just going to tell you, 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 Jesus is going to make you better. And he says, well, how have you done all this? Well, there's, um says about um, um, three notches on the sundial ago, um, I just suddenly felt better. So I thought, well, you know, I mean, you've been very kind to me, sir. Um, I'll just, you know, I'll do all the jobs I should have been doing for the last few weeks. And, uh, and here I am. And the, um, the centurion looks at the, you know, the sundial on his wrist and says three notches. Yes, notches. Yes, that's exactly when Jesus said those words. Absolutely wonderful. And today that challenge to us is to have the same sort of faith that when Jesus says something or when Jesus promises something, when God promises something in his word, that he will do it. That's an added bit, again, the complicated bit in a way. Matthew, writing from his background, um, he's writing from, to Christians from a Jewish background, what in verse 12 would be called the, the subjects of the kingdom, those who, in a sense, by birth would see them as belonging to God's chosen people. Warns them not to trust in that Jewish birth, rather to trust in Jesus, their Messiah, for all that God will do for them. He says it'd be a dangerous thing if they go back to trusting in their, as it were, their, what they were born as a Jew rather than their faith in Jesus, because they might miss out on this very sort of feast in heaven with the Messiah that they're looking forward to. That um, G- 
Jews in that time would have been looking forward to, but they'd have been thinking it was because of their, you know, their birth circumstances, their family line, um, that they would join that feast. Whereas Jesus says, no, it's through faith in him that we're accepted by God now and in the future. And that uh, those who just trust in their family line rather than in faith in him are likely to find themselves outside that wonderful celebration and their places taken by Gentiles like this centurion here who have faith in him as Messiah and Lord. That may be a warning to us that God is not impressed by the sort of things that may impress our neighbours. Um, my, my brother retired recently from being, being, being a vicar and for the first time in his life he's had his own house He's been very much enjoying it and you know, being able to choose what goes where and do things to it without having to get permission and knowing he'll actually enjoy it for a few years rather than moving on after three or four to somewhere else. And uh, having the garden done, he's into gardening, he's not like me. And uh, that's all being done. He's enjoyed it and I'm sure he's showing them to his neighbours, but I don't think God will be particularly impressed by the state of his garden or the awful state of mine. He'll be more concerned with how he's been living in the last however many years he's been serving in that way. God is not impressed by the things that may impress our neighbours. Nor is God going to look favourably on our country here in Britain because of our past Christian heritage. No, God sees what's really, really going on both in our hearts and in our society. Well, that leaves a few verses 14 to 17. Well, Matthew deals with them quickly, so I'm going to as well. First of all, he cures Peter's mother-in-law. Did you know Peter had a mother-in-law? He clearly married one or two mothers-in-law here this morning in church. Lovely to see you. And, uh, and what does Peter do? He heals um, Peter's mother-in-law, and straight away, she starts doing the cooking. Um, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether there's a message there or not. And uh, then he delivers other people from the influence of evil spirits and a range of disease, but it's just summarized in a few words in Matthew, because the punchline he wants to come to is in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Words from Isaiah 53, that wonderful chapter that goes on to speak of Jesus, not only taking our physical diseases, but also our sin, our spiritual uncleanness upon him and dealing with that. So where do you and I need healing in any of those senses today? Is it some physical condition in ourselves or in those we love? Can't always know what's best from an eternal perspective. Don't know whether God will heal by medicine or by miracle, but we can ask for his strength and his peace to fill us and those we love as we wait to see how things will turn out. Do we have mental or emotional pain or spiritual doubt, or uncertainty, or do we see others struggling in those ways? Let's draw comfort from the fact that Jesus deals with each person in this chapter in their own individual way, that he'll do the same for us, bringing his healing and his wholeness both now and into eternity. A moment of quiet to think of that, and then I'll say a prayer based on it, well, we had another reading at another couple of services, but in fact, Jenny quoted a few words from it in her prayer. It's lovely to hear, and I'll use a prayer based on that in just a moment. Lord, help us not to be anxious about anything, 
but to pray in every situation with thanksgiving and bring our requests for ourselves and for our others to you. So may your peace that is beyond our understanding guard our hearts and our minds as we rest in your unchanging love. Amen.